Hello, Hoopaholics. It's Coach Spins here from the Box in One. What a busy few weeks of basketball it had been during the NCAA tournament. And we got a little bit more quiet on the hoops front as the national championship was a little over a week ago as we're recording this here on April 11th. That last week of the regular season is always a strange one in the NBA. A ton of teams resting their stars. Others who are playing younger guys and kind of intentionally trying to increase their lottery odds. But we are free and clear of all that now, folks. We are on to the NBA playoffs. I'm taking this opportunity to answer some of your questions about the NBA draft, this draft class, the wrap-up of many rookies and how they performed in their first NBA seasons. We're going to answer all of your questions here on this short, maybe 20, 25-minute podcast max. But I want to start here with the pregame speech, the opportunity for me to address a little bit of what's going on in the NBA right now with these play-in tournament games. And what I'm seeing a lot of online are deep-dive analyzing moments going back into the regular season games between these teams that are going to be playing in the play-in tournament. Folks, this is one game. Anything can happen. And I think we overanalyze the regular season meetings trying to predict a winner here when at the end of the day, shooting is what often determines who wins in a one-game sample. Some player, some team gets inordinarily hot or cold. That tends to determine the outcome of the game far more than any tactics, any in-game adjustments, coaching decisions, schematics, matchups. All that stuff matters, but over the course of a best-of-seven series, we get to see the moves and counter moves kind of take place and really swing games back and forth for teams. But in one game, it's so much more just about shooting. It's about those outlier games or performances that really happen, you know? And I think that we need to remember that there's a reason why the NBA wants these playoffs to be a best-of-seven series. It's to avoid those outlier-type performances. It's fine when it comes to the play-in games because these teams are so similar in terms of what they have really accomplished this year. Their resumes, their win-loss totals, all tend to be ballparked and grouped very tightly together. So a one-game variant isn't going to devalue what some of these teams have accomplished throughout the regular season. But... We all know anybody can eat any, beat anybody else on any given night in the NBA. So as I'm looking forward to these play-in matchups, I'm thinking less about analyzing the regular season games to try to make an informed prediction and more trying to analyze the regular season games just to understand what type of contest we're going to have and who some of the X factors might be. Leave the predictions to those who are willing to give away their money on that stuff I really don't think that there is much value in predicting the winners of single game playing experiences. With that said, 2023 NBA draft, looking at the 2022 draft class, we're taking your questions here in a mailbag episode. I want to get straight to the point and start with a question from my good buddy, Stephen Gillespie, uh, right over there at no ceilings podcast guest before we've worked together several different times. Stephen's a great guy, great writer, Asked about the current trend that we're seeing of a lot of the players who have decided to go back to school and return to college for an additional season instead of going pro. And he asked, probably pun intended, 
what are the pros and cons of this? So I view the changing landscape around declaring for the draft to be very NIL driven, right? With transfers, with NIL, the, the changing landscape in college basketball makes it much more palatable for several of these guys to go. First of all, there's money involved and the ability to have sometimes comparable money that they're going to be making in college as opposed to on a second round contract if they were to be signed for, you know, or drafted outside of the top 30. If the money is similar, you get much more security in college basketball, stable playing time and environment to develop a chance to definitely see minutes and meaningful games. This is good for college basketball to have the NIL there, but it's great for these players because it gives them an added incentive to buy into college basketball's development scheme, which I think is always very good because it's super competitive. The coaches do an excellent job of improving players at the fundamentals. And I just think there's no substitute for the level of coaching that you're going to get on an individual basis, both in terms of what your coaches give to you and in terms of what your opponents are preparing for you. I think right now this has been most impactful for freshmen. And I actually wrote about this a few weeks ago, uh, wrote about Trevor Keels and the precarious predicament that a lot of second round picks, particularly freshmen and one and done candidates find themselves in now by declaring for the draft, going down to the second round where they end up getting picked, but only having a two-way contract available for them to sign. It's a growing trend in the NBA. Teams are taking advantage of it a lot more, and it creates a lack of a stable environment for development. So if you're a younger guy and you know you have areas of your game that you need to work on, you definitely don't want to start the clock on your rookie contract now, especially if you're outside the top 30, until you know that you have improved in those areas quite a bit. I really like Kyle Filipowski and Tyrese Proctor going back to Duke. I think that that's going to be a team a little bit better built for each of them next year with some of the, the size, athleticism, and better wing play that they're going to have across the board coming in with a strong freshman class. I like Donovan Klingon betting on himself, just wanting to show a little bit more, enjoy his time in Connecticut, defend a national championship, and know that the Huskies are going to have a huge spotlight on them as a program next year. Klingon has an opportunity to really rise up draft boards. Riley Kugel and Terrence Arsenault from Florida and Houston, respectively, two other guys who I think made the right call in going back. They had a real chance of being second-round guys this year. And next year, with improved play, more consistency, bigger opportunity in the schools that they're at, they have a chance to rise up in draft boards. And I don't necessarily think that's due to 2024's draft being a weaker class, so to speak. I, I don't buy into that necessarily. I think right now it's weak in terms of top-end talent having already presented itself as being worthy of a top-five pick. But there's real depth and talent in this class as you go deeper into the lottery and in the first round. I just think it's the right move for some of these guys to continue to go back to college basketball and develop. So good question there from Stephen that I thought was a great kind of kicking off spot for the mailbag. Johnny is taking us back to the 2022 draft class and kind of melding it together here. The question he asked about Shaden Sharp. If Shaden Sharp re-entered this year's draft, knowing what we know now about him, where would you have him on your board? So last year, despite 
being the man of mystery and not being able to watch him play a lot. I had Shaden Sharp fifth. My board a year ago was Paolo one, Chet two, Jaden Ivy three, Jabari four, and Shaden five. And I feel really strong and secure in both that order and believing that those top five guys have the highest long-term ceilings of anybody in that class. Man was Sharp really good down the stretch run for the Blazers. And I know they didn't play a ton of their guys. And, you know, this was all about developmental reps, but he showed that he can be impactful in a lot of different ways. He started out the year in a very simple role, cutting, knocking down catch and shoot threes, trying to buy in and play inspired defense. We saw him take the reins of the offense later on in the season and really create with the ball in his hands, both for himself and for others. He's a high-volume three-point shooter, which I believe opens up everything else for him as an athlete on the floor. Look, based on the trajectory he's shown, athleticism, passing, feel, just how he plays in general, I think he'd be right in the mix to go third, fourth, or fifth in this year's draft class. I think Victor and Scoot are a little bit more of a level above him in terms of their polish, but him, Brandon Miller, and Amen Thompson would make for a really fascinating 3-4-5 debate. Next question comes from a good draft head there himself, Derek Parker, covers the Oklahoma City Thunder and has done a lot of great work in this cycle, diving into a few of the draft prospects. He asks a question that I kind of ask myself in the shower every morning. How far away are Jairus Walker and Taylor Hendricks' prospects? Because for Derek, the gap feels like it's shortening every day. I'll preface with this. I have yet to do my deep dive on Jairus yet. Here's where I've been at with with these two guys. Defensively, I'm really impressed by them both. Hendricks has really popped off the page on a second watch. He's a great helper and rim protector, fluid mover for his size. I think both guys have defensive versatility in similar ways, but with different frames. They kind of play the same position there as a a guy who's best served as a four, can play some small ball five, can switch and guard smaller guys on the perimeter. Hendricks probably more switchable one through five. Jarris more comfortable really playing the five for long stretches. Here's where the difference comes in for me and why I still have Jarris a few spots higher, although they're in the same tier on my draft board. Jarris is much more versatile on the offensive end. Hendricks has shown a lot of high upside flashes with the ball in his hands. The vertical athleticism and the ability to finish with dunks is very, very appealing. But I just like the way that Jairus fits into a team construct a little bit more. Playmaking from the elbows. Really good off the short roll as a decision maker. Simple off the bounce and doesn't overdo things. Has a mismatched body in frame where he can really punish smaller guys who are on him. Knows how to attack closeouts, when to throw extra passes. He's so much more polished in different areas on offense that it's almost impossible to imagine a scenario where Jairus isn't a good team contributor on that end of the floor. So while I still have some some issues about Hendricks' ability to process the game and, and if his flashes off the dribble are ever going to turn into anything, I just think that's the slight difference between those two right now. All right, we're going to stay on the defensive end with this next question here. It's from Draft Fanatics. He threw a bunch of different questions at us on our Twitter call in the mailbag, but this one stood out to me as a really fascinating one. Who's a better defender in college, Davion Mitchell or Kaysen Wallace? 
Loved this question because I think both guys were lauded for just their intensity on that end of the floor. Here's what I would say in trying to explain the difference between them. Mitchell is more experienced and a little bit better on ball. He's quicker, more reactionary. The way that he was able in college at Baylor and has translated to his time with the Kings, the way he's been able to slide on the perimeter with guys, and as they pick up their dribble or stop to change directions, he stops his full-speed slide on balance. One of the more impressive athletic traits that I've seen from a guard uh, as a, a basketball talent evaluator. He can hound guys. He's all over them, and and he changes the tempo and the complexion of a half-court game when he decides to pick up his pressure in space one-on-one. Kaysen, I think, well, he's a very good on-ball defender. Uh, he's a much better help-side guy, smarter ball hawk in terms of reading skip passes or plays from the weak side, having that free safety ability to roam free and gamble for steals when he sees an opportunity. If somebody turns their head, Kaysen is really good at going and knifing in from a spot you wouldn't expect somebody to come from to make a play on the ball. I also think that Kaysen is a little bit bigger and stronger and would do or fare better guarding up the lineup against certain skill types. Dave Eon is much more locked to the one or at least guards and perimeter oriented guys for me. I've seen Kaysen kind of stonewall mismatch posting wings who try to back him down or score on him in the inside. He's got quick hands, strong frame, really good center of gravity and knows how to move his feet, crafty at knowing when to take charges or pull the chair out on guys. I I think there's a little bit more versatility to Kaysen. Davion, because of the experience, because of the sample size and just how disruptive being an elite on-ball defender can be, I think Davion was a better defender in college I really like the versatility that Kaysen brings forward and how he fits into a team scheme that will make him, in my estimation, a better defender in the NBA. Ben Glover wants to keep the defensive theme going here on the podcast and ask about the defensive upsides of Asor Thompson, Rayon Repair, and Anthony Black. All three are around the same height, but what is it that makes them different? Is there any way I could compare them? I'm going to give a quick breakdown of each of the three. And within those, you might see some differences for how they they stand out from each other. Let's start with Asor. He tends to be the highest ranked on most consensus draft boards right now, is going to be the highest of the three on mine. Much better help defender than everybody else. He's by far the best of the group. Really smart with how he challenges at the basket. Good instincts on the weak side too, like we just talked about with Kaysen pick off skip passes, know when to knife in and and knows the difference between when to bluff at a ball handler and when to go and try to poke it away. His his length really helps him in passing lanes. And I think he's very good at the point of attack against ones, twos, and smaller threes in the NBA. Anthony Black, really quick feet at the point of attack. He loves to crowd guys on the perimeter, slide with them. The strength is there to guard different types of scoring wings. Uh, but I don't know if he's going to be the best pick and roll defender uh, of in the world. He's probably the best in the group, but this is where my question really comes in for Anthony Black. Great in space on the perimeter, not really the shiftiest at getting through contact on screens. He's also not a really explosive athlete. So when we talk about a sore being really good as a help side rim protector and defender, you know, I don't necessarily see Anthony Black having that same level of pop or burst to 
block a ton of shots near the rim and be as reliable against high-level athletes. So while I, I do like the way he slides his feet on the perimeter, I am confident that Anthony Black on ball is versatile enough to find a top perimeter assignment that he can guard every single night in the league, just not as brilliant of a help defender as a guy like Sore. Then we get to Ryan Repair, who is the most length of this group, over a seven-foot wingspan, really quick hands at the point of attack, and similar to Black, likes to pick up and extend his pressure a little bit farther beyond the three-point line. I think Repair has the most interesting frame as a guy who can really fill out and guard up the lineup and maybe guard one through four and be somebody that bothers scoring wings. That carries a lot of weight to me. You know, the, the NBA has guys like LeBron James's, Kawhi Leonard's, uh, you know, Carmelo Anthony back in the day. These really good isolation wing defenders who are big and strong and long and use their physicality to leverage you to spots on the interior. I think Asor is a little skinny and has a high center of gravity where I kind of worry about him physically banging with some of those guys down low. Anthony Black tends to be a little bit overly physical in those situations because he's not as quick or explosive to react. Rupert, if he can add some strength to his frame, is the one guy who I would see having that type of versatility. And with his length, he can just be so damn disruptive. So I really like the the idea of repair long-term. I think Asor is the best blend between on-ball and off-ball. And Anthony Black is still, at the end of the day, a really damn good defender. Good question, though, Ben. Good question. Daniel Mortensen wants to continue talking about the Thompson Twins. And with this being the week of the overtime elite uh, you know, individual sessions that they're showing, they're, they're doing their their media days, their uh, their private individual workouts, three-on-threes, five-on-fives, really going through all of the pro day stuff. Uh, it's an appropriate timing for the question. He asked what my favorite team fits would be for the Thompson Twins. And I tried to attack this somewhat in lockstep with where I believe that they will be drafted, where I have them on my board and what I see their projection with the rest of the class. I have a man being a top three guy right now, just making an adjustment on my most recent big board and, and kind of tiers list to put him above Brandon Miller, where uh, I have him as a top four guy without question. I think a man would do really well in Houston or San Antonio. The Rockets have a lot of good players, but they need one guy to live in the lane and kind of create for others. Jabari Smith would greatly benefit from having a man Thompson. I think a guy like Alperin Shengun, who loves to create at the high post, would love to have two guards swirling around him and a man in Jalen Green, who are awesome athletes and great threats to finish above the rim and be excellent cutters. I think Jalen Green would benefit from having somebody who's more of a pass-first guy, like Amen Thompson is, to try to create some open and easy opportunities for him and ease that burden in the half court. I also think San Antonio would be an awesome fit. The way that their organization has a track record of developing shooters and, and improving their jump shots really stands out to me as the best place for a man to add that missing piece to his game. Because if he has a reliable jump shot off the bounce or catch and shoot wise, he is borderline unguardable in a half court setting. I also think the San Antonio Spurs are the one team on this list 
who, or at least at the, the, the top six or seven, who needs that perimeter creator number one option uh, to play with the ball in their hands. And that is the type of scenario and setting where a men would do best. Asor is a little bit different of a player. I view him more in the seven to 10 or 12 range, more of a connective tissue type of player. I've heard a couple people describe him almost like an Andre Iguodala in training because he's so good at almost everything except being a high volume scorer. And I think that that's probably pretty true for a guy like Asor, particularly if he can keep making that jump shot a little bit better and more reliable. Washington strikes me as a really good spot for him. He can play a little bit of the point next to Bradley Beal. Those two would exchange perimeter matchups in the postseason based on what would be best to try to hide Beal, and Asor would be fine in any type of circumstance. He is a, a good connective passer who can also create a little bit out of the pick and roll and ease that burden on Beal, but doesn't need a million touches in order to be an impactful offensive piece. And that's a hard balance to strike particularly if you're looking for a guy that's going to be a long-term starter. I'd also give Toronto as a, a sneaky, cool destination for him. And it's not one I hear about a lot. I know they need a little bit more depth at the guard spot, but he would preserve their defensive identity with length and with guys who really buy in on that end of the floor. And I'd love to see what an offense built around him and Scotty Barnes being kind of these pseudo-wing slashing mismatch driving opportunity guys would really turn out to be. So I trust the Raptors developmental system over a long period of time. And I think that a sword continue to get better there. Those two strike me as really good fits for a guy like him in that later part of the lottery. B-ball realism. The next question about one of the guys that's really started to get close to my heart over the last few weeks as I watched him a little bit more, I'm buying in on him definitely outperforming where a lot of his draft uh, draft stock is right now. It's Gigi Jackson. B-ball realism asks, which team would be the ideal fit for Gigi to achieve his potential? It's a tough question. I think what Gigi needs and if, if we're going to talk about achieving potential, this is about finding an environment that's best for Gigi. He needs structure. He needs patience. He needs accountability. He needs really good coaching, uh, but a stable environment that sees the long game with him continue to lead him to that point. I tend to identify a few of the same organizations that do a great job at those things, but those organizations also seem to be the ones that do a lot of drafting based on character. It's like Oklahoma City, San Antonio, Memphis, Miami. They tend to be the most patient, long-term, most consistency of getting a lot out of guys who are raw when they come into the league. But they guard their locker rooms from internal strife really, really tightly and protect against any of those cracks starting to form on the inside. I think Gigi's perceived locker room issues, and I want to emphasize perceived because I'm an, an outsider who doesn't have too much intimate knowledge of what goes on in South Carolina. They're going to be talked about a lot. But it's raising a question for me about whether these teams that we mentioned, Thunder, Spurs, Grizzlies, Heat, are really good at getting the most out of players because they draft the right people or because they are 
patient and stable and structured in so many different ways. I'll be honest, like I like the idea of Gigi going to a place like Utah where the timeline fits. They're not going to speed him up too much. They can make him one of the focal points of their long-term development plan. And I love the spacing that Will Hardy provides in his offense. I also like the thought of him in Indiana because they have good, young, high IQ players and Tyrese Halliburton and Andrew Nemhart who are going to move the ball enough to compensate for some of his immediate deficiencies. But I, I think it's going to be so much less about the on-court fit and which players and pieces are on the court sharing you know, the ball with him while he's playing. And it's so much more about the locker room, the stability of the front office and the coaching staff to really guide him along in a trustworthy manner. Those are the things that are going to make for Gigi Jackson realizing his potential. And I am at the point where I believe he has top five or six potential in this entire class. He has won me over in a big way, just with the flashes that he shows on the film. So many negatives, so many things to clean up. He's the youngest guy in this draft class who was put in a really tough situation at South Carolina. John Grooms has another question about players in this late lottery uh, stage here. Kind of a two-pronged question. I'm going to try to answer both of them. First one, do you see... Jordan Hawkins breaking into the lottery. Yeah, definitely I do. Um, I don't have him as a lottery guy right now. I think he's 16th on my most recent big board. I can definitely see him getting in. Uh, Right now, I'm doing a Grady Dick breakdown. I did Hawkins just a few days ago with the draft video that's out. Please go check that out on YouTube or the written scouting report on our Substack page. I think there is a real case for having Jordan Hawkins above a guy like Grady Dick. There are a ton of teams in the later part of the lottery who are looking for that floor spacing threat and movement shooter. And I think Hawkins has a good shot of being the preferential guy above Grady Dick because he's so much more fluid with his hips. He's really good. And we've seen him be uh, fantastic in intricate screening actions, which is exactly what you look for from a movement shooter. So uh, I still have Grady Dick a little bit higher on my big board right now. I wanted to do a breakdown of these two guys back to back so that I could have this comparison point. I think there's room for both of them in the lottery, but with how many teams are looking for that specialist shooter on that wing, I think at least one of them is going to be drafted in the top 14. John did have a second question here, uh, kind of shadowing back to last year. Is there a guy who will wow at the combine and rise on boards similar to how Jalen Williams from Santa Clara did last year. The guys like this are hard to predict. I've got two who have really impressed me along my most recent rewatch, and I think that they have the competitiveness in those environments to stand out and therefore can be guys who rise up boards. Kobe Bufkin from Michigan is one of them. Really love his game because I don't know if there are many holes or flaws to it. He doesn't have one defined skill that translates well to saying, all right, this is what he's going to do every single time to score or to impact play for the better on an NBA floor. But he's got relatively few weaknesses. He's a smooth lefty. I I do think he uses both hands pretty well around the rim. Does have a pull-up, does have a three-point jumper, competes on defense, good positional size, better length. There's a lot that I like about Bufkin. The other name on here is... 
the competitive jackass in the best way possible. It's City Sissoko for the G League Ignite. Like this guy is uber physical and definitely wants every loose ball. He's going to argue every foul call. He's going to get himself into some extracurriculars. There's a little bit of like a Draymond Green, Dylan Brooksiness to him that I think rubs some people the wrong way. But I think it's also what makes him great. It's one of the reasons why I would put money on him being able to last in the league because he's that one guy I would not want to play against. I'd want to have him on my team. And he is very skilled for a, a young, strong-bodied 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six wing. He's a lot of different things that he can do on the defensive end. He guards almost any position with success. Very smart on the offensive end, but he cares. He's got a motor and an effort and an intensity about him that I think would really allow him to show well if he were to play in a scrimmage setting or environment. So those are the two guys I would look forward to be kind of late risers here through this draft process. Bufkin is a name who's already started to go on that ascent. I think Sissoko could end up being closer to a middle of the first round guy and move ahead of Leonard Miller on many draft boards. The two point podcast, shout out to, to the two point podcast there. Next question on Derek Whitehead. What do we see as being our favorite NBA skill for him? Spot up shooting. I just don't trust enough of the rest of his arsenal with the health concerns that we've seen, the lack of ability to separate and put pressure on the rim. It's a tough one for me. I loved Derek Whitehead coming out of high school. I loved him. Had him as the, the top college prospect entering the season but whether it's those injuries or whether it's just the fact that he doesn't have the athletic juice that I kind of hoped he would he would progress and continue to add it's really hard to see him reliably playing that role with the ball in his hands I'd love to see it when we do our scouting report and video on him I'm sure I'm going to mention that upside and use a lot of high school tape to show that it's still there But if I have to talk about a favorite and a reliable NBA skill for Whitehead, it's going to be the combination of catch-and-shoot three-pointers and his ability to hit a sidestep three-pointer or a one-dribble pull-up when he's chased off the line. One last question before we get out of here. We'll go back to draft fanatics because a million questions were asked there, and I want to make sure we reward that, get one more. Nikola Jovic, forgotten rookie for the Miami Heat, the center point of this question is Jovic a great piece that will offer some versatility to the heat lineup down the line, or is he just another guy who gets lost on an NBA bench? And the reason I wanted to end on this question here is because I still very firmly believe that none of us in the draft space, in the the media landscape or analyzing players and always looking for talking points, none of us are patient enough. It's not very fair to judge guys through their rookie season, whether it's Jovic, whether it's Johnny Davis with the Washington Wizards and a disappointing rookie year from him. It's just so hard to draw long-term conclusions from this because they're expected to be bad. They're expected to be young and learning on the fly and not have reliable roles out of the gates. It's the exception to the rule when some of those guys do develop that as rookies, particularly on good or playoff teams. And only a handful of them have really emerged into that this year. Jalen Williams and Walker Kessler are on teams that didn't even make it to 500, even though they're crawling into the Western Conference play-in race. It's so hard to be able to do this. 
I will say I do have one worry about Jovic. It's on the defensive end of the floor. I think in the right scheme with the right rim protector, it might be able to work. I love the offensive feel and pieces that he has. It was probably a good thing for him that he played down with the Sky Force and in the G League as much as he did this year. Definitely not a, a guy that you would want to sell stock on, but I, I think that there was enough enough shown this year to reinforce why he went in the later part of the first round as opposed to anything earlier. I was a huge fan of his pre-draft and, and long before the 2022 cycle took place, ended up dropping him down to the later part of the first early second rounds. I think that's probably going to be the type of value that he does deliver in the long run. That's it for the mailbag episode here, folks. Keep it locked on the box and one with our YouTube channel and over on Substack. Uh, we've got a lot of great stuff coming out. A Grady Dick scouting report that I, I mentioned earlier. We're going to be showing our, our latest ranking of tiers for the 2023 draft class. And then an exercise that I'm excited for going back and re-tiering guys from the last three draft classes. Those will be released progressively over the next few weeks as a means of trying to refocus myself here look at some of the lessons that I've learned and try to apply them to getting the absolute right analysis that I can to contextualize this 2023 draft class. Thank you all for all the support as always, please, you know, like share, subscribe, all of the things that you can do here to the box and one and the box and one podcast until next time. We'll see you later.